Part One, Chapter Five, Reading Five of Oblomov by Ivan Alexandrovich Goncharov, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Davidson. Once more, Oblomov dreamed that he was in the great drawing room at home. The long winter's evening was closing in, and his mother, seated on the sofa and engaged in quietly knitting a boy's stocking, was yawning occasionally and scratching her head with a knitting needle. Beside her were two maids, their heads bent over their work, as industriously they fashioned a holiday garment either for young Ilya or for his father or for themselves. Meanwhile, the baron, with his hands clasped behind his back, was pacing cheerfully to and fro, or seating himself on a chair for a moment or two before resuming his walk. Ever and anon, too, he would take a pinch of snuff, sneeze, and then take another pinch. As for light, it came from a single tallow candle, and even the said candle was a luxury permitted only on autumn and winter evenings, for in summer every one contrived to rise and to go to bed by daylight, so that candles might be saved altogether. This was a practice which had arisen partly from custom and partly from economy. Of every commodity not produced at home, but requiring rather to be bought, the good folk of Oblomovka were extremely parsimonious so that although they would willingly slaughter a fine game-fowl or a dozen young pullets for a guest's entertainment, not a raisin too much would be put into a pudding, and every face should whiten if said guest should pour himself out a second glass full of wine. Very seldom, however, did such contretemps occur. Only the most abandoned of wretches would have done things like those, and guests of that kidney never obtained even admittance to Oblomovka. Local manners required that, though twice or thrice invited to partake of a given dish or a given bottle of wine, the guest should not do so, since he was supposed to be aware that even the first invitation had conveyed a secret prayer that he would kindly abstain from the dish or bottle of wine after merely tasting of the same. Nor were two candles lit for every guest, since candles required to be bought in the town, and therefore, like all other purchased articles, were kept under lock and key by the lady of the house, and with the candle ends were counted before being stored away. In short, Oblomovka disliked dispersing hard cash, so much so that however much a given article might be required, the money for it would be handed out with reluctance, however insignificant the sum. As for any considerable outlay, it was accompanied with groans, lamentations, and high words, since the Oblomovkans would suffer any kind of misfortune rather than part with their coin. For this reason the sofa in the drawing-room had long been in rags, and the leather on the baron's armchair only by courtesy, since most of its cord and rope stuffing was now exposed, and only a single strip of the original covering clung to the back of the chair the rest having, during the past five years, become split into strips and fallen away. For the same reason the entrance gates had sagged and the veranda became rickety. Nevertheless, to pay out, save from two to five hundred roubles for a given purpose, however necessary that purpose might be, seemed to the inhabitants of the establishment something almost approaching suicide. In fact, on hearing that a young landowner of the neighborhood had gone to Moscow and there paid three hundred roubles for a dozen shirts, 
twenty-five for a pair of boots and forty for a waistcoat. It was on the occasion of the landowner's marriage. Old Oblomov crossed himself and exclaimed with an expression of horror, "'That young man ought to be clapped into prison.' In general, the Oblomovkans paid no heed to politico-economic axioms concerning the necessity of swift, brisk circulation of capital, or concerning the active production and exchange of commodities. In the simplicity of their souls they considered that the best theory, as well as the best practice, with regard to capital, was to hoard it. On chairs in the drawing-room there would be seated, snoring in different attitudes, the gentry and customary inmates of the house. For the most part a profound silence would reign among them, for they saw one another every day, and their respective stores of intellectual wealth had long been tapped and explored, while news from without arrived but scantily. Indeed, amid the stillness, the only sound to be heard would be that of old Oblomov's heavy workday slippers, the dull beat of the clock in its case, and the snapping of thread as one or another of the sewing party bit or broke off a piece. Perhaps after half an hour of this, one of those present would yawn, then make the sign of the cross over the lips, and murmur, Lord, pardon me. Next, someone would follow suit and then a third until the infectious desire to ventilate the lungs had gone the round of the company. Next, old Oblomov would approach the window, look through it, and say with a touch of surprise, "'Only five o'clock, yet already it is dark in the courtyard.' "'Yes,' someone would answer, "'tis always dark by this time. The long evenings are beginning to draw in.' In spring, contrary rise, the company would fall to expressing surprise and gratification at the thought that the long days were approaching. Yet, had you inquired what the long days meant to them, they could not possibly have told you. After this episode, silence would resume its sway until, perhaps, in stuffing the candle, someone would chance to extinguish it. Upon that, everyone would give a start, and one of the company would be sure to ejaculate, An unexpected guest is making his way in our direction. In fact, it was not an uncommon phenomenon for the incident to give rise to a lengthy conversation. Time at Oblomovka was reckoned mostly by festivals, by the seasons of the year, and by various family and domestic events, no reference whatsoever being made to months or to the days of a month. This may have partly arisen from the fact that none but old Oblomov were capable of distinguishing between the names of the months and the dates in a given month. Presently the head of the family would relapse into meditation, while little Ilya, lolling behind his mother's back, would also be sunk in dreams, and at times actually dozing. Suddenly old Oblomov would, to take a typical incident, halt in the middle of his pacing, and clap his hand anxiously to the tip of his nose, whereupon there would ensue some such dialogue as the following. The master of the house. What on earth is the matter with me, see? Someone must have passed away, for the tip of my nose is itching. His wife. Good Lord, why should anyone have passed away, because the tip of your nose is sore? Someone has passed away only when the bridge of one's nose is hurting one. What a forgetful man you are, to be sure! Were you to say a thing like that before strangers, you would make us blush for you. The master of the house. But every part of my nose is hurting me. His wife. Pain at the side of it means news to come, in the eyebrows sorrow, in the forehead a greeting, on the right side a man, on the left side a woman, in the ears rain, in the lips a kiss, 
in the whiskers a present of something to eat, in the elbow a new place to sleep in, and in the sole of the foot a journey, and so forth and so forth. Lastly, when nine o'clock had struck, there would follow supper, after which the company would disperse to rest, and sleep would once more reign over the carefree heads of the Oblomovkans. In his dream, Oblomov saw not only an evening spent in this manner, but whole weeks and months and years of such evenings. Never did anything occur to interrupt the uniformity of that life, nor were the Oblomovkans in any way wearied by it, since they could conceive no other existence, and would have turned from any other with distaste. Had there been imported into that existence any change due to circumstances, they would have regretted the fact, and felt troubled by the thought that tomorrow was not going to be precisely as today. What wanted they with the diversity of changes, the incidents for which others yearned? Let others drink of that cup, said they, but for us Oblomovkans, no such thing. Let others live as they please. Incident, even pleasing incident, they considered to bring disturbance and fuss and worry and commotion in its train, so that one could not sit quietly in one's seat and just talk and eat one's meals. Therefore, as decade succeeded decade, the Oblomovkans dozed and yawned and indulged in good-humoured laughter at rustic jests, and assembled in corners to relate of what they had dreamed during the previous night. Had their dreams been unpleasant, the company at once became thoughtful and nervous, and refrained from jesting. On the other hand, had their dreams been of a prophetic nature, at once the company grew cheerful or despondent, according as the visions had promised sorrow or joy. Lastly, had the dreams called for the consideration of some portent, the company proceeded to take such active measures as might be necessary to deal with the situation. Also, everyone indulged in card-playing, games of fools, and so on, while, as for the women-folk, they would discuss the neighborhood and pry not only into its family life and social gaiety, but also into its secret ends and desires. About these they would dispute, and then pass censure upon various persons, more particularly upon unfaithful husbands, and relate details of birthdays, christenings, name-days, and dinner-parties, with the lists of the invited and non-invited guests. Likewise they would show one another various articles of their wardrobes, and the hostess would proudly vaunt the merits of her sheets, her knitted garments, and her lace of home manufacture. Yet at length even these things would begin to pale, whereupon coffee, tea, and cakes would be served, and a silence broken only by desultory remarks ensue. Of course also there were certain rare occasions when these methods of spending the time were interrupted by such happenings as the entire household falling ill of a fever, or some member of it either tripping over a stake in the dark, or falling out of the hayloft, or being struck on the head by a beam which had slipped from the roof, Yet, as I say, such events were rare, and when they occurred, every known and tried domestic remedy was brought into play. The injured spot was rubbed with ointment, a dose of holy water was administered, a prayer was muttered, and all was well. On the other hand, a winter headache was quite a common phenomenon, and in that case the household should retire to bed, groans and sighs would resound from every room, one person would wrap up his head in a cucumber poultice and a towel, 
Another placed cranberries in his ears and inhaled horseradish. A third walked about in the frost with nothing on but his shirt, and a fourth, half-conscious, rolled about the floor. It was at regular periods of once or twice a month that this happened, for the reasons that the Oblomovkans did not like to allow any superfluous heat to escape by the chimney, but covered the stoves when the flames were rising high. Consequently, upon no single stove-couch or stove could a hand be laid without danger of that hand being blistered. Only once was the monotony of Oblomovkan life broken by a wholly unexpected circumstance. The household, exhausted by the labors of dinner, had assembled for tea when there entered a local peasant who had just been making an expedition to the town. Thrusting his hand into his bosom, he with difficulty produced a much-creased letter addressed to the master of the house. Everyone sat thunderstruck and even the master himself changed countenance. Not an eye was there which did not dart glances at the missive. Not a nose was there which was not strained to its direction. How unlooked for! At length, said the mistress of the household, as she recovered herself, from whom can the letter have come? Old Abromov took it, and turned it over in his hands, as though at a loss what to do with the epistle. Where did you get it from? he inquired of the peasant. And who gave it you? "'I got it at the inn where I put up,' replied the man. "'Twice did folk come from the post-office to inquire if any peasantry from Oblomovka were there, since a letter was awaiting the baron. And the first time they came I kept quiet, and the postman took the letter away. But afterwards the deacon of Verkulovo saw me, and they came and gave me the letter and made me pay five kopecks for it. I asked them what I was to do with the letter, and they said that I was to hand it to your honor. "'Then at first you refused it?' the mistress remarked sharply. Yes, I refused it. What should we want with letters? We have no need for them, nor had I any orders to take charge of such things. So I was afraid to touch it. Don't you go too fast with that thing, I said to myself. Yet how the postman abused me. He would have complained to the authorities had I left the letter where it was. Fool! exclaimed the lady of the house. And from whom can it be? said old Oblomov, meditatively, as he studied the address. Somehow I seemed to know the handwriting. Upon that the missive fell to being passed from one person to another, and much guessing and discussion began. Finally, the company had to own itself nonplussed. The master of the house ordered his spectacles to be fetched, and quite an hour and a half were consumed in searching for the same. But at length he put them on, and then bethought him of opening the letter. "'Wait a moment,' said his wife hastily arresting his hand. Do not break the seal. Who knows what the letter may contain? It may portend something dreadful, some misfortune. To what have we not come nowadays? Tomorrow or the day after will be soon enough. The letter will not walk away of itself. So the letter was placed under lock and key, and tea passed round. In fact, the document would have lain there for a year, had it not constituted a phenomenon so unusual as to continue to excite the Oblomov's curiosity. Both after tea and on the following day the talk was of nothing else. At length things could no longer be borne, and on the fourth day, the company being assembled, the seal was diffidently broken, and old Oblomov glanced at the signature. Radishchev, he exclaimed. So the message is from Philip Matevich. Oh, ah! From him, indeed, resounded all sides. 
to think that he is actually alive glory be to god and what does he say upon that old oblomov started to read the letter aloud it seemed that philip matevitch desired him to forward the recipe for a certain beer which was brewed at oblomovka then send it send it exclaimed the chorus yes and also write him an answer two weeks elapsed really we must write that note old oblomov kept repeating where is the recipe where is it retorted his wife why why it still has to be looked for wait a little why need we hurry should god be good we shall soon be having another festival and eating flesh again let us write then i tell you the recipe won't run away yes i dare say it would be better to write when we have reached the festival sure enough the said festival arrived and again there was talk of the letter in fact old oblomov did in truth get himself ready to write it he shut himself up in his study he put on his spectacles and he sat down to the table everything in the house was profoundly quiet since orders had been issued that the establishment was not to stamp upon the floor nor indeed to make a noise of any kind the baron is writing was said in much the same tone of respectful awe that might have been used had a dead person been lying in the house hardly had old oblomov inscribed the words dear sir slowly and crookedly with a shaking hand and as cautiously as though he had been engaged in a dangerous task when there entered to him his wife i have searched and searched she said but can find no recipe nevertheless the bedroom wardrobe still remains to be ransacked so how can you write the letter now it ought to go by the next post her husband remarked and what will it cost to go old oblomov produced an ancient calendar forty kopecks he said what you are going to throw away forty kopecks on such a trifle she exclaimed we had far better wait until we are sending other things also to the town let the peasants know about it that might be the better agreed old oblomov tapping his pen against the table with that he replaced the pen in the inkstand and took off his spectacles yes it might be better he concluded and to this day no one knows how long philip matevitch had to wait for that recipe also there were times when old oblomov actually took a book in his hands what book it might be he did not care for he felt no actual craving to read he looked upon literature as a mere luxury which could easily be indulged in or be done without even as one might have a picture on one's wall or one might not one might go out for an occasional walk or one might not hence as i say he was indifferent to the identity of a book since he looked upon such articles as mere instruments of distraction from ennui and lack of employment also he always adopted towards authors that half contemptuous attitude which used to be maintained by gentry of the ancient regime for like many of his day he considered a writer of books to be a roisterer a ne'er-do-well a drunkard a sort of merry andrew also he would read aloud items of intelligence from journals three years old such items as it is reported from the hague that on returning to the palace from a short drive the king gazed at the assembled onlookers through his spectacles or at vienna such and such an ambassador has just presented his letter of credentials 
Again, there was a day when he read aloud the intelligence that a certain work by a foreign writer had just been translated into Russian. "'The only reason why they go in for translating such things,' remarked a small landowner, who happened to be present, "'is that they may wheedle more money out of us dvoryanya.' Meanwhile, the little Ilya was engaged in journeying backwards and forwards to Stoltz's school. Every Monday, when he awoke, he felt overcome with depression. Should he happen to hear Vasika's rasping voice shout aloud from the veranda, "Antipka, harness the piebald, as the young baron has to drive over to the Germans!" Yes, then Ilya's heart would tremble, and he would repair sadly to his mother who would know why he did so, and began to gild the pill, while secretly sighing to herself at the thought that she was to be parted from the lad for a whole week. Indeed, on such mornings he could scarcely be given enough to eat, and scarcely could a sufficiency of buns and cakes and pies and sweetmeats be made to take with him, the said sufficiency being based upon an assumption that at the Germans the pupils fared far from richly. One couldn't overeat oneself there, said the Oblomovkans. For dinner one gets nothing but soup, roast, and cabbage. For tea, only cold meat. And for supper, morgenfry. However, there were Mondays when he did not hear Vasika's voice ordering the piebald to be harnessed. And when his mother met him with a smile and the pleasant tidings that he was not to go to school that day, since the following Thursday would be a holiday, and it was not worth while for him to make the journey to and fro for a stay of only three days at other times he would be informed that the week was the week of kindred and that therefore cake-baking and not book-learning would be the order of the day or on a monday morning his mother would glance at him and say your eyes look dull to-day are you sure you are well then she would shake her head dubiously and though the crafty youngster would be in perfect health he would hold his tongue on the subject. Thereafter she would continue, You must stay at home this week, for God knows what might happen to you at that other place. And in her decision she would be confirmed by the whole of the rest of the household. True, these fond parents were not blind to the value of education. It was that they realized only its external value. That is to say, they could not look beyond the fact that education enabled folk to get on in the world so far as the acquisition of rank crosses, and money was concerned. Certain evil rumors had arisen regarding the necessity of learning, not only one's letters, but also various branches of science, which, until now, had remained unknown to the world of Oblomovka. But, as I say, the good folk of that place had only the dimmest, the remotest comprehension of any internal demand for education, and therefore desired to secure for their little Ilya only certain showy advantages and no more to wit a fine uniform and the getting of him into the civil service his mother even foresaw him become a provincial governor yet this they thought ought to be attained at as little cost as possible and by various means of covert evasion of the various rocks and barriers which lay strewn about the path of enlightenment yes those rocks and barriers they said must be walked round not scaled learning must be assimilated lightly and not at a cost of exhaustion both of body and mind in their view the process need be continued only until the little Ilya had obtained some sort of certificate to the effect that he had been through a course of the arts and sciences but to this oblomovkan system old stoltz was wholly opposed 
and probably his German persistency would have carried the day had he not had to contend with difficulties even in his own camp. That is to say, his son was accustomed to spoil young Oblomov by doing his exercises for him and prompting him in his translations. Also, young Oblomov could clearly discern the differences between his home life and life at school. At home, no sooner would he have awakened than he would find Zakhar standing by his bed. Even as the nurse had done, Zakhar would draw on for the lad his stockings and put on his boots, and if Master Ilya, now become a boy of fourteen, did not altogether approve of Zakhar's performances, he would nudge the valet on the nose with his toe. Moreover, should the boy at any time want anything, he had three or four servants to hasten to do his bidding, and in this fashion he never learnt what it was to do a single thing for himself. Yet in the end his parents found solicitude wearied him, for at no time could he even cross the courtyard or descend the staircase without hearing himself followed by shouts of, "'Where are you going to, Ilya? And how can you do that? Or you will fall and hurt yourself!' Thus pampered like an exotic plant in a greenhouse, he grew up slowly and drowsily, and in a way which turned his energies inwards and gradually caused them to wither. Yet on rare occasions he would still awake as fresh and vigorous and cheerful as ever. He would awake feeling that an imp of mischief was egging him on to climb the roof, or to go and roll in a field, or to rush round the meadow where the hay was being cut, or to perch himself on the top of a fence, or to start teasing the farm dogs, in short, to take to running hither and thither and everywhere. At length the thing was no longer to be borne. No longer could he resist the imp's prompting. One winter's morning, capless, he leaped from the veranda into the courtyard, and thence through the entrance gates. Thereafter, rolling a snowball hastily in his hands, he darted towards a crowd of boys. The fresh air cut his face, the frost nipped his ears, his mouth and throat felt choked with cold, but in his breast there was a great joy. He rushed forward as fast as his legs could carry him. He shouted and he laughed. In two seconds he was in the thick of the boys. One snowball he threw. It achieved a miss. A second snowball he threw. It achieved the same. And just as he was seizing a third, his face became converted into one large clot of snow. He fell, and being unused to falling, hurt himself. Yet still he laughed merrily, though the tears had sprung to his eyes. Behind the knot of youngsters ran two dogs, pulling at their clothes, for, as everyone knows, dogs cannot with equanimity see a human being running. Thus the whole gang sped through the village, a noisy, shouting, barking crew. At length the lads were caught, and justice was meted out, to one on the head, to a second on the ears, to a third on the rump. Also the fathers of the culprits were threatened with retribution. As for the young baron, he was hastily thrust into a snatched-up greatcoat, and then into his father's sheepskin, and lastly into a couple of quilts, after which he was borne homeward in triumph. The entire household that expected to behold him arrive in a moribund condition, and indescribable was his parents' delight on seeing him carried in, both alive and unharmed. Yes, they gave thanks to God. They dosed the boy with mint and elderberry wine and raspberry syrup, and they kept him three days in bed, although the one thing that would have done him any good would have been to have let him go out again and play in the snow. Entering quietly, Zakhar tried to arouse the sleeper, but failed. Suddenly a loud laugh proceeded from the neighborhood of the door. 
Oblomov started up. Stoltz! Stoltz! he cried rapturously as he threw himself upon the newcomer. End of Part 1 Chapter 5 Reading 5 Recording by Kevin Davidson www.blogordie.com